Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary and author of the new book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady, available from Sophia Institute Press. I am enjoying so much my weekly conversations with different guests about the lessons as we go through the book one by one, person by person. Did you know that you could wear a sock honoring many of the different individuals who are found in How They Love Mary? In the month of June, I'll be talking about St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Kateri Tekakwitha and Fulton Sheen. Those three individuals all have a sock at Sock Religious. And when I talk about St. Faustina, well, she's the visionary who received the Divine Mercy. And you can find a pair of Divine Mercy socks at Sock Religious. Head over to Sock Religious by using the link in the show notes and begin wearing socks for the glory of God and in honor of the saints. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. As we celebrate Father's Day this upcoming weekend, it's a great opportunity for us to pray for our fathers, especially praying that they might be more like St. Joseph, and it's possible that we might even pray that they will befriend St. Joseph if they haven't already done so in their spiritual and in their devotional life. This is actually the title of a new book by Deacon Greg Kandra, who is the creator of the blog, The Deacon's Bench, which I have been a follower of for a very long time. And uh, he spent nearly three decades in broadcast journalism. He's written several books, and I'm very honored to be able to speak with him today about his new book, Befriending St. Joseph, available from Ave Maria Press. So thank you, Deacon Greg, for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I was remarking before we started that uh, during the year of St. Joseph, I had a podcast called The Cup of St. Joe, and the idea behind The Cup of St. Joe and the name actually came from you, because on Twitter, <laughs> I had, you know, I started it, I just called it Wednesdays with St. Joseph, and I'm like, well, that's stupid, because like, you know, if it's Friday, will somebody listen to it? I thought it was bad branding, in a sense. So, so I put it out there, what should I name it? And you replied, Cup of St. Joe. And there it was. It was born. And uh, now there's a new guy on YouTube that has a show called Cuppa Joe, I think, or something like that. So um, kind of he ran with it. He oh, just had so me on funny. as a little guest the other day. So so I'm grateful for your inspiration for the year of St. Joseph. Well, happy to help. <laughs> That's great. And, and, you know, your book, Befriending St. Joseph, I think it's a great compliment to this podcast, which is a, a show that talks a lot about the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, called How They Love Mary. It's the title of my latest book as well. And, and so St. Joseph loved the Blessed Virgin Mary in a very powerful way for he made his home with her. He 
he cared for the child that she gave birth to. And so there's so much there about St. Joseph and Marian devotion and how they all go together. I'm assuming that your book, Befriending St. Joseph, probably was one of these outgrowths from the year of St. Joseph. Is that right? Well, yeah. The way it really started was I discovered the um, the seven sorrows of St. Joseph. I had never heard of this before. A lot of us are familiar with the seven sorrows of Mary. But there is a companion to that, the seven sorrows of St. Joseph. And I posted something about it on my blog, and my publisher was very intrigued. And this was toward the, you know, sort of in the middle of the year of St. Joseph. And there was a lot of uh, talk about Joseph uh, circulating. And she said, would you be interested in maybe doing a book on this? And I said, okay, sure. Everyone's talking about, everyone's talking about Joe. Why not? And um, it sort of grew out of that because there was so much interest about St. Joseph. Uh, he was in the air and a lot of people were, were thinking about him. And this was another way of approaching him. You're a deacon of the Catholic Church. And as a man, growing up as a Catholic, and then ultimately going through formation to become a deacon, now as a preacher of the word and a helper of the priests and the bishops of the church, was there already a devotion to St. Joseph in your life before the year of St. Joseph? Or was it something that really was deepened and came to new expression during that year? It's interesting because St. Joseph, I think for a lot of us, is this guy who is sort of in the background. He's not in the forefront, as certainly not like Mary is in, in the hearts and minds of, of people in the church. Uh, as everybody knows, he doesn't have any quotes in the Bible. There's no great Magnificat that's attributed to him. And so all the attention really goes toward Mary. And so Joseph never loomed large in my life, uh, although I was taught by the sisters of St. Joseph, who uh, I dedicate my book to them, in fact, uh, and I have many fond memories of being taught by them in Maryland. And But this was an opportunity really for me to not just befriend St. Joseph, but to really discover him and to help other people look at him a little bit differently and see him as this really vital, often overlooked, but very, very important figure in in our lives and in the life of the Church and really in salvation history. And someone who is uh, unique in the Holy Family, as, as I mentioned, he's the only one in the Holy Family who is not sinless. He was a good man, a righteous man, but he was very human like us, and he made mistakes, and he had problems and challenges. And I think it helps to look at his life and his contribution through that lens and to see him in a very human way. And that can give us, I think, I hope, an entree into the family, as into the Holy Family, as St. Joseph really being um, a representative of ourselves. Your book, Befriending St. Joseph, has a subtitle, Finding Faith, Hope, and Courage in the Seven Sorrows Devotion. So how did this Seven Sorrows Devotion to St. Joseph help you to find faith or hope or courage? Well, what you discover is that faith, hope, and courage were central to the life of St. Joseph. They were central to all of his decisions, his choices, the way that he lived, the way that he devoted himself to the Lord and, and to Mary and to Jesus. 
And so much of his life, I go back to this again, 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 and again in the book, so much of his life uh, really turned on the idea of surrender and trust and having the courage to, as we would say today, to let go and let God. And, you know, the, one of the first things the angel says to him in the dream is, do not be afraid, just as the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid. Something we need to hear more and more, I think, especially today in the times that we're living in, so much uncertainty. And so much of what Joseph lived through, so much of what happened to him was stuff he never planned for and never expected and never prepared for. It was like every time he turned around, God was throwing another monkey wrench into his life. But he went with it, and he accepted it, and he had the courage to go where God was leading him. And it's a powerful lesson, I think, for all of us. You focus on the seven sorrows of St. Joseph. You name them. Each chapter is dedicated to them. Joseph decides to divorce Mary. Joseph sees Jesus born into poverty. But then each one has kind of like a response, a matter of trust, a father's despair, a father's compassion, a husband's anguish. When you came up with these different aspects, as we could look at the sorrow of St. Joseph, were you also looking at it in a way from your own life, from how you needed a deeper trust, how you've despaired, how you've had compassion, how you've been anguished? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, so often there's a lot of uh, that's in this book that is really trying to imagine what it was like for Joseph and in a way imagining it for myself. How would I feel if I were in those circumstances? And how did Joseph respond to them? And how how should I respond to them? How can all of us uh, better respond to the challenges and the problems and the difficulties that we have in life and really find reward and, and, and consolation and something good out of this? You know, the in the tradition, the seven sorrows are paired with seven joys, and it's really, you know, two sides of the coin. Some Joseph experiences something very sad and heartbreaking and difficult, but out of that comes something beautiful and something joyful. Um, for example, the when he is having all sorts of anguish about whether or not to divorce Mary, the angel comes to him and says, do not be afraid, because this is something beautiful and holy and wonderful. And he accepts that and takes that into his heart and goes on with his life. And I think so often uh, when we encounter problems and difficulties in our own lives, things that don't turn out the way that we wanted to, we need to listen for God's voice to try and tell us that there is something better that's going to come from this and look for whatever joy that, that can arrive out of it. The very first sorrow of St. Joseph is Joseph decides to divorce Mary. And I think sometimes I've seen kind of banter on social media, maybe you've seen it as well, that uh, some people don't like the word divorce. They think like, you know, thinking about it maybe as today's word divorce. How can we kind of accept that phraseology that the scriptures use or how can we understand it? 
Well, I think you have to look at it in the context of the times. Uh, for all intents and purposes, Joseph and Mary, even though they were not living together, um, they were married. They were they were joined together, and he was seeking a way to quietly put this aside and let Mary get on with her life, and he would get on with his life. And um, you know, I think it, it's interesting the perception that a lot of us, uh, I think, today have of divorce. Um, Divorce is seen as something a lot more common now than it was, you know, even when I was growing up, uh, a generation or two ago, it was unheard of for Catholics to become divorced. In fact, I hadn't, this is off on a tangent a little bit, but I had a, a conversation with a woman not too long ago who wanted to get an annulment and she'd been divorced for many years. And I said, well, are you planning to remarry? And she said, no, but I want to receive the Eucharist. Yeah. And I said, uh, if, if you're not going to be remarried, and uh, you can receive the Eucharist now. And this stunned her. She, she almost began to cry because in, for so many of us, divorce is seen as something very, uh, very evil and very sinful. And it's very tragic and it's very painful. Uh, but it's... It's not the end of the story, <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of us uh, Catholics of a certain age have a different understanding of divorce as a lot of us do today, but I think we need to look at Joseph's situation in the context of his times and how he was trying to solve a difficult problem, and this was the only way that he could see out of it, um, but God intervened as God always does, and said, this isn't the way it appears. There's something else that's happening here. And that's a beautiful message for us to remember in our lives, I think. St. Joseph wanting to divorce Mary quietly was actually an attempt for him to preserve her life because some people from the community may have even wanted to stone her or this could have been very bad for her. So in a sense, we call him a just man. And so this was almost a just action for him to do this. Absolutely. It, it was an act of love and and mercy and really great affection and tenderness and respect for Mary. I'm reading The Mystical City of God. It's a book by the Venerable Maria of Agreda. She was a 16th century Spanish mystic. Solanus Casey had a great devotion uh, to The Mystical City of God. And uh, I kind of stole from uh, Father Michael Schmitz and Father Joe Roche, uh, who did The Bible in a Year and uh, the Divine Mercy Diary in a year, uh, respectively. And and so I thought, well, you know, this Mystical City of God, it's 2,500 pages. I've always wanted to read it. Lots of other people probably want to read it, but just are always discouraged. So I decided that in 2022, from January 1st to December 31st, I was going to record every day reading seven pages. I worked with the publisher that publishes it. They're, they were on board. They promoted it, everything like that. And and so it's been a very fruitful experience for me. And there are certain things that surprise me. And of course, these are mystical revelations, uh, kind of the fruit of Maria of Agreda's prayer in a sense as well. And so um, it's not Bible, it's not scripture, it's not dogma, so we don't have to believe in anything that Maria Bagrata writes, but it's, it's good, I think, for the imagination. And so 
Maria Vagrida, right now I'm in volume two of the book, um, uh, in the second volume. And so uh, I'm, I'm in book four or book two of volume two or book four of the whole series, however you want to describe it. But that book two, book two or book four, uh, is all about St. Joseph and uh, kind of his response to finding out about uh, the pregnancy and everything like that. And in my mind, I always assumed this happened before the visitation. It just would seem Mary has the announcement, and then jo- she tells Joseph he div- wants to divorce her. Then the angel comes and says, no, don't be afraid to take Mary. But Maria Vagrida says that, you know, Joseph takes Mary to the visitation. She wants to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. And it's within Mary's heart, and she feels bad that she hasn't told Joseph yet about this. Three months pass. Joseph comes back. Still, she hasn't told him. But now in the book, it's at the point where she reveals this to Joseph, and then it goes through Joseph's reaction. So that's a big, long introduction to this question, I guess. But when do you think that took place in the in the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph? When did he find out? Oh, that's an interesting uh, an interesting puzzle. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it very much, and it's something that the the scripture really is silent about uh, the chronology of how it all works. And I think it it's probably logical that you know Mary might have uh, you know gone to to see her cousin before she told Joseph what was really going on. Certainly the scripture makes it seem like right after the angel told her she was out the door <laughs> on her way uh, to to the hill country um, to you know affirm this for herself and to see with her own eyes what the angel had told her. Um, but it's interesting and it's uh, you know I, I talk a little bit in the book about, this painting done by James Tissot, which uh, I'm fascinated by, it's called The Anxiety of Joseph. And it's Joseph in his carpenter shop, bent over his bench, daydreaming. Uh, a friend of mine said, it's, it's so wonderful that we see the patron of workers slacking off on the job <laughs> and, and daydreaming. But he's you can see the look on his face. It's not just, uh, it's not a pleasant daydream. He's, he's worried about what is happening and what he should do. And he's trying to come to a decision about, about all of this, or he might also, you know, we don't know when exactly Tissot was putting this in Joseph's life. He might've been worried about how he was going to make ends meet. Suddenly, you know, Mary was going to have a child and they were going to get married and there was going to be a family that he was going to have to be responsible for. He was probably anxious about that, as anyone in that circumstance would be. So there was a lot going on that he had he had to be worried about. Um, and maybe at that moment, Mary was off visiting her cousin and he was wondering what that was about. I, I don't know. But uh, that's an interesting question. Uh to, to try and work out the chronology of, of how it all played out. Uh, it certainly is plausible that she would have kept that to herself and would have waited maybe for some divine inspiration or some divine insight for a way to be able to tell Joseph what was happening. And um, maybe in her own worries, uh, you know, the angel came back 
and said, oh, by the way, <laughs> we're going to work this out with Joseph. Don't lose any sleep over this. One of the sorrows of St. Joseph is Joseph's sorrows at the circumcision of Jesus. Why would this be a sorrow for St. Joseph? I think as it would be for any any parent uh, seeing their child in pain and suffering and bleeding. Um, certainly in, in the Jewish tradition, it's a beautiful ritual and uh, a kind of rite of passage. But at that moment, um, feeling helpless to be able to take away his child's suffering and pain. And whether he realized it or not, and we don't know one way or another, it was a foreshadowing of the suffering that Christ would have at the end of his earthly life. Uh, the first uh, the first time that uh, he, he cries out in pain uh, was at that moment. And so there's something very piercing and very painful uh, for a father to see that. The sorrows of St. Joseph stop, of course, with seven. It's kind of like this magical number, right? That we have the seven right. sorrows of Our Lady, the seven joys, whatever. And so I, I think that there could be other sorrows of St. Joseph. And, you know, it could be St. Joseph sorrowing over Jesus who just fell down when he was running outside or something like that. You know, one of these sorrows of the hidden years. And actually... Just as an aside, I, I interviewed one time Sister Joseph Andrew from the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. And I asked her, I said, or we were talking about St. Joseph and, and Mary, Mary's first Holy Communion. When do you think that was? And then she brought up, well, when do you think St. Joseph made his first Holy Communion? I said, Sister, St. Joseph probably obviously didn't receive Holy Communion. The sacrament was not yet instituted. He died before the Last Supper. And she said, well, don't you think that when Jesus fell down and scraped his knee, that when Joseph kissed that owie on Jesus's knee, that the blood of Jesus touching his lips would have been a Holy Communion moment for him? And I thought it was a very pious, a very devotional image to think about. And, you know, it's something that I've returned to time, uh, time and again. Uh, I guess maybe I'll ask, what do you think about that? Well, that's an interesting idea. Um of course, that is um, the, the the whole experience of that for Joseph would be very different from the experience of the apostles at the Last Supper, or the experience that you and I have when we receive the Eucharist um, at Mass, uh, when it comes to us under the appearance of bread and wine. Uh, he would literally be uh, tasting the blood of Christ. It's it's a little bit different interpretation. It's it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm not sure it completely it completely works. But sure. uh, I I give her extra credit for thinking that way. Right. So I'm thinking an eighth sorrow of Saint Joseph. If we were going to add one, that maybe it would be Joseph sorrowing over the fact that he will not be with his family any longer. And, you know, basically the dormition, the death of St. Joseph, that, uh, that that could have been a sorrow, that as he knew he was approaching his death, that then, well, Mary's going to be alone with Jesus. And then maybe Joseph had already foreknowledge of all the uh, divine mysteries that were going to take place. And perhaps there was a sorrow for him in that moment of life, 
knowing that he was going to leave behind his family. And I think about, you know, I, I buried in one of my first years as a pastor, uh, a 34-year-old man who died of colon cancer, had a, you know, a wife, four children, who at that time had not yet received First Holy, none of them had received First Holy Communion. And so thinking mm. about him as he sorrowed over the fact I won't be able to see my son play baseball here on earth, of course, probably from his place in eternity, he's able to look down and be present and, and see his children and be that intercessor and everything like that. But maybe that too could have been a sorrow for St. Joseph. Yeah, and I, I preached about this last year. I can't remember when, um, uh, but I... I I talked about the seven sorrows of Mary, and I, I mentioned in a similar way that I think there was an eighth sorrow of Mary, which was the death of Joseph, um, another sword that pierced her heart, this person who had played such a powerful role in her life and in the life of Jesus, uh, losing him and uh, being uh, alone, uh, although she had Jesus uh, until you know he went off in his ministry. But it was a great sorrow for her, uh, I think, for that, and a great moment of heartbreak. And I think praying about that and thinking about that can be a consolation to a lot of women in that circumstance who lose the man they love uh, and uh, and have to go on without him. Uh, it's something to think about. It's something that's not mentioned very often, but I think it's worth some prayerful reflection of uh, how Mary felt at the death of Joseph. What's your take on this very hotly debated question? How old was St. Joseph? Is he the old man in the statue we see at church? Is he the muscular statue of uh, that we see, I think, at the at the cathedral in Wichita, Kansas? Yeah, the guy who works out every day. Yeah, so which one is he? Well, I, I'm not one of those who thinks he was an old man. I think he was much closer in age to Mary. I don't know that he was a young man. Um uh, I mean, if Mary was, uh, you know, 14 or 15 years old, I don't think he was a teenager. Um, but I I think it's very convenient uh, that, you know, in the tradition of the church, we've tried to think of him as an old man. So he was someone who could not possibly have had relations with Mary at any point in his life. And I think it's uh People like to picture him sometimes as a more grandfatherly figure than a fatherly figure. Um, and by the same token, I don't necessarily think he was this strapping young lumberjack either. <laughs> he was probably a pretty uh, average uh, citizen of, of Nazareth and um, probably someone who was otherwise unremarkable, uh, although known, obviously, for being righteous and and being holy and being very devout and a good match for for mary i read something um not too long ago uh, i was having a discussion about my book with somebody and i did some research and apparently there is this uh this volume it's it's not approved by the church or anything uh about saint joseph that apparently it's, it's from the Middle Ages, and presumably it was dictated by Jesus telling his story and telling the story of Joseph. And 
how Joseph was 90-something years old when Mary came to live with him uh, as a young girl, and he <laughs> married her when she was 14, and he died when he was 111. <laughs> this could be the history of the uh, carpenter or something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't buy that version either. <laughs> I'll tell you, for the longest time, I kind of espoused the – the position of the Orthodox Church, in a sense, like uh, intellectually at least, that maybe Joseph was older. I even thought maybe he had a, a previous spouse, you know, with uh, with whom he had children. I thought that was the easier way to explain the children of of uh, that are mentioned, yeah, the brothers yeah. and sisters of the Lord. But I had the kind of I, I did have an intellectual conversion over this point where I came to accept, of course, the St. Jerome position that, that these are cousins or distant relatives. Uh, but also, you know what really converted me on the idea that he was not an old man was to think about the journeys that this man, St. Joseph, went through to go to Bethlehem, exactly. to go to Egypt. I don't think that's something a 70 or 80-year-old man could have done uh, or so that's just kind of what sold me on the younger Joseph. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, my wife and I are now uh, getting ready to sell our home and uh, we're hoping to relocate to Florida uh, someday this year, probably. And I'm a lot younger than the old St. Joseph would have been. And the prospect of that is daunting enough. And I don't have to worry about donkeys and camels and everything else <laughs> to make this kind of a journey. But to you know, totally uproot your life and to go into a different country and a different place and a different culture uh, is not an easy thing for someone to do under any circumstances. And I can't imagine somebody doing it you know, in his 70s, 80s, or 90s. You discovered the Seven Sorrows devotion to St. Joseph during the year of St. Joseph, or wrote about it on your blog, The Deacon's Bench. Is this a devotion then that you've incorporated into your life? Is like, I don't even know how to pray the Seven Sorrows devotion of St. Joseph. Do you pray the Hail Mary? Is there a special prayer like Hail Joseph? I know there's like this Hail Joseph prayer or something like that. Um, how do you pray it? Do you pray it? It's not something that I've really uh, gotten into. <laughs> I've spent so much time talking about it and writing about it and uh, telling other people about it. I've, I haven't really incorporated it into my own life. Um, but I would encourage people to think about it. And at the end of my book, uh, there is a structured prayer for people to uh, pray it as a group if you wanted to do it with a men's group or do an ovena around the feast of saint joseph uh that involves you know the scripture readings that are uh you know germane in the book uh plus reflections and uh a hail mary and uh, and our father uh to to sort of put you in the moment and to help us all reflect on these moments in joseph's life you know, I spent so much time working on this myself. Uh, I, th I think writing this book was in many ways uh, a prayer, uh, living with the seven sorrows and joys of Joseph's life and thinking about my own life more deeply. And uh, it was interesting also to be writing this in the middle of the pandemic uh, at a particularly challenging time in our world and in my own life. And thinking of all the... Uh, the 
difficult circumstances that a lot of people have found themselves in over the last couple of years. And being able to to pray over that while working on this book was was very fruitful. It it looks like a marvelous book uh, to increase our devotion of Saint Joseph to reflect about him. I know I'm looking forward, uh, and it's uh, a shorter book too. So this isn't like a 300 page treatise. There's 109 <laughs> or so pages. It's you know the devotion itself is only about 70 pages. So there, it's very user friendly and one that you could bring to your holy hours. One you could bring before mass. If you go to daily mass on a Wednesday, you know Wednesdays in honor of Saint Joseph. It might make for a nice seven week program for someone. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and I'm wondering, is your intended audience for men? Because, of course, St. Joseph is kind of like a masculine devotion. But I'm thinking women can also greatly benefit from this as well. So I'm sure that's kind of everybody is your audience, right? Well, yeah. And one of the things I tried to drive home in this book is for us to think about Joseph in much broader terms. You know, we think of him as the patron saint of fathers and the patron saint of workers and realtors and uh, on and on and on. But he is a patron for us in so many circumstances. He is the patron for anyone who finds themselves uh, without a home or without a job, anyone who is worried about their children, anyone who is wondering what God's purpose might be for his life or her life. Like the saying says, go to Joseph, turn to him with your prayers and with your petitions, and ask him to help you through it. And believe me, I've learned in my own experience, he will. He will be with you, and he will walk with you, and he will make everything a lot easier for you. Deacon Greg, this has been such a great conversation about St. Joseph. Uh, it reminds me of the days of the Cup of St. Joe, where every week I spoke with someone about St. Joseph and promoting devotion to him. And uh, I think it's something, of course, beyond the year of St. Joseph. We need to keep uh, that fire of, of love for him and how he can help us as we go to him. So you wrote this excellent book, Befriending St. Joseph, Finding Faith, Hope, and Courage in the Seven Sorrows Devotion. You also blog at the Deacon's Bench. So if people want to find you online, how do they do that? Yeah, just uh, go to thedeaconsbench.com, and I'm there. Or you can Google it. It will probably pop up. And the book is available from Ave Maria Press and from Amazon.com as well. Yeah, I follow you on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever you are online on the socials. And uh, I encourage other people to do so as well. Thanks so much for joining me today, Deacon Greg. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I am honored by how many people listen to How They Love Mary. I hope that you'll continue to listen over the upcoming months as we continue to go through, lesson by lesson, my book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady. If you are touched by today's episode, consider sharing it on social media. And if you haven't already done so, please rate and review the podcast so that it might help others find it as well. Again, thanks so much for listening. Know of my prayers for you. Please pray for me. God bless you and Mary intercede for you.